0: the question is like doesn't that eat into your your operating expense so much that it hurts your your cash on cash return right it makes the numbers not be as as juicy and and as good and my answer is surprisingly it doesn't at all and there's multiple reasons why one of them being what i hit on earlier is the cost of insurance is three times less on a condo or townhome because they have a master service policy secondly Um, there's other costs that typically are intertwined in in that HOA. For me, for instance, water was accounted for in the HOA dues themselves. So I get a um, water and sewer reimbursement from my tenants, which surprisingly is a pretty big number. It's actually like $68 a unit um, because now I'm covering the water and sewer expense for their utility so suddenly, and I'll be honest here, these are real numbers. So it's $155 on those that OOB unit, that older to beach unit. It's $155 as the HOA dues. I immediately get $68 bucks back for on reimbursement for utilities on, on the water and sewer utility that I cover for that tenant. Because there's a utility uh, piece to when you're filling out paperwork and what ones are you covering, what ones are you not. Suddenly, I'm also down on insurance by 3X. So compared to a single family home, I think the average um, insurance cost is 1400. And my average unit, like I said, is 280. So you do the math on that. I think it's 84 bucks I'm saving. So suddenly I'm already right off the bat. You take 155 minus the 68, uh, you know, Kent, maybe you're good at math here. What does that come to? And then subtract $84 from that. And now what what number are we at, guys? Listeners, you're probably at like 15 bucks. Suddenly what looked like $155 HOA due is actually only an additional OPEX of 15 bucks. But time out, there's more as the infomercials go. Um, what else are you getting with the HOA? I'm getting a team of people, a team of eyes that are like policing my units. I, I, I become market agnostic. It doesn't matter where I'm at because I have a team of people policing this. I got security cameras.
1: Okay. Welcome to another episode of affordable housing and real estate investing. Today, we got Mike Caggiano. Uh, Mike's got a very, very interesting affordable housing investment strategy that I can't wait to share with all of you listeners today. Um, Mike is a father of three. He currently lives in North Carolina, but he invests out of state. So we hopefully we can cover a lot of different areas of investing today. But without further ado, Mike, welcome to the show, man. How you doing, dude? I'm doing really well. Excited
0: to be here, Kent. Um, definitely want to thank you too for what you've done, what you've created here. Um, it's a great cause. It's needed, right? It's an essential need to help this type of demographic and the families that are in need. And at the same time, some of us unique investors found this as a fun niche to get involved in and it's kind of a win-win. So I'm doing great, man. Happy to be here.
1: Dude, I love it. I'm so glad you showed up, and I'm so glad we we met each other online and just started learning about your story. I thought this is the guy I definitely need to bring on to the podcast. So, Mike, just tell us a little bit about about yourself, like your background. Let's start there. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so
0: I just hit the 40 uh, year mark, so I am I am there now. I have three kids, as you mentioned, two, six, and eight. I am a full-time dad. I am a full-time executive for a company. I work as a senior leader in HR for a software company. Um, Yeah. And really, I mean, how the journey began is probably back in the day. So I'm from Maine originally, should mention that. And I grew up uh, in many different sports, found myself to be pretty good above average in baseball. And so I went and played collegiately and at a university in, in at Maine and uh, met some good buddies, some good friends. And then at some point I realized uh, baseball is not gonna be my calling and uh, started thinking differently, right? Took some schooling more serious, did an internship. That got me into finance. My major was business with a concentration in finance. So I took a job at a company called MBA America, an internship. Um, it was kind of eye-opening to me, right? That was my first exposure to like really seeing debt And in particular, I was a credit analyst, so I was seeing these these credit cards, these balance transfers, and I had upsells and things like that I could do and really saw what debt could do to people. Right. And the stresses and we would call them. I would get involved in collections and things like that. So fast forward a little bit. um, I ended up doing that internship for a semester, turned into a job, actually my senior year, they said, why don't you just come on full time? And, you know, I said, well, I can't because I'm still a student. And they're like, well, work evenings and part time if you want. And so I did. So I moved on and uh, took that job. And then uh, fast forward a little more, uh, found myself uh, with a colleague that joined the company as well, starting a job at a mortgage company. And he said, Mike, come join, man, you're going to love it here. And this guy's to put this in perspective too, um, this is pre 2008 crash. So these were exciting times in the mortgage industry for sure. And I had good buddies. Dane, I think you mentioned you're you're an athlete yourself. These guys know how to have a good time. So we were slinging up no doc, ninja loans. You guys probably heard of some of these terminologies and you know um, magic marker loans where you cross the things out if they have a 620 FICO or better. And I started understanding the financial pieces of what you want from an investor's per- perspective but i still wasn't executing on it now i'm only a year out of college i ended up buying my first unit um right you know six months out of college after i took that full-time job at the mortgage company kind of practicing what i was preaching and that was my first flavor so you know kind of fast-forwarding even more now so now i'm now i'm an owner now i'm kind of a landlord as well and my roommate's paying 700 a month i'm paying 150 a month for my housing so I'm having a good time here. I'm making good money in the mortgage industry. I'm a <laughs> landlord, right? So this was all happening, you know, and, and I'm not realizing, you know, that I'm getting more and more into this though. Um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward even quicker now. Uh, now I'm moving out of Maine and we elected to pick a state, pick the best spot that we want based on economy, based on jobs, and it landed me in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that was about 13 years ago now so when i moved out i rented it out to a private market and i'll pause here but that was my first you know i moved out i whatever i could fit in my car guys was what i took whatever i couldn't was what the new renters owned mm-hmm. which was including of silverware bedding <laughs> a couch okay. all that stuff <laughs> yeah and well, so my, yeah so we moved out and then we were you know that put me in north carolina and you know and that's where the story kind of began i guess
2: I was going to say, I can sniff some affordable housing stories here in North Carolina. Is that, is, that, how you, is that where you got started? Is that how you got started? What triggered your interest in affordable housing? Because it sounds like that first property was not, uh, obviously, Section 8 affordable housing. It was your typical A class, B class-ish, yeah. as long as you guys didn't beat it up too much with empty beer cans and pizza boxes and stuff like that
0: yeah, everything uh, was uh, was fixable, what we did. so, um, but yeah, so what happened, Dane? Uh, you know what we did, and what I ended up doing here was renting it out to some private market. Uh, it was actually young a couple young uh, college girls, and I met with their father, and you know, we signed the lease and we did all that stuff. And two months into it, I was having like some serious issues. so, And I should say, yeah, this is about a class, I call it a class A minus property. You know, there's a little bit of room for improvement, but super safe area, Old Orchard Beach, Maine, um, really fun, mile from the beach. And uh, they were definitely having a good time. And I was having some issues with with my neighbors, and they were not happy with what was going on. And I experienced my first eviction, actually, just three months after I became a landlord. And any listeners out there that are getting involved or already kind of involved in landlording, that's probably your worst nightmare, right? This is like worst case scenario is pretty much what ended up happening to me is they were actually doing some drugs. Um, I had police involved and I had to do like the official writ eviction process, you know, three months into being a landlord and I'm doing it from 825 miles away. Nervous. I got a friend there, like looking over it kinda. And, uh, to then lead up to that. So once that happened, which was an experience in itself, one that I did document down, you know, in a Word doc to make sure I followed the process again, should I need it? I'm guessing, hey, I'm only three months into this. I think I'm going to do this for the next 30 years. I better start documenting things because I'm already learning a lot. And I found absolutely backwards, like did not realize I was going to get into Section 8 housing at all. And she reached out to me. So I advertised my unit after I evicted them. Advertise my unit on Craigslist. And guys, I mean, I'm old, right? I'm old and wise now. This predates Facebook being anything of advertising, of use. I think Facebook was only created two years prior to this time frame we're in in my life. So um, I was on Craigslist, guys. Yeah, many listeners may not even know what Craigslist is. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that's right. I advertise. And this was before like affordablehousing.com and these other Section 8go.com uh, sites and things like that. And I happened to get so lucky, I found the sweetest, but yet sound vulnerable sounding uh, applicant. And um, she reached out to me and I just felt like, man, I need to help this person. It was a weird scenario, right? Cause you're, I'm in dire straits from a financial perspective, cause I'm a young guy here. And I'm like, I can't have this unit vacant, but geez, I couldn't disregard the genuine, like, I don't know, she was just super vulnerable. And I'm like, she has a young kid. And I'm like, you know what, learn, uh, you know, uh, we'll call her uh, LM. So LM initials, you know what, LM, uh, let me, let me see what I can do. Can you send me what you're talking about for paperwork? So I read through that. It, you know, she had a little, she had a contract, she had a voucher. I didn't know what this voucher was. I'm going through that. Mm-hmm. There's things that I'm supposed to review and sign. And I just took my gut. I went with a gut instinct on that. And I followed through and began the process of the paperwork, as you guys know. And the uh, the approval process, the home inspection process. And I was going through it just as naive as any investor. I had no tools that I've you know managed to implement and create and and refine over the years. And I got really lucky with her. And she moved in. And guys, get this, she's still a tenant of mine. She's still (laughs) in that unit. She sends me a Christmas gift every year. Um, it's crazy. She's still my tenant, though. And now her son. Who at the time, I think he was only like seven years old. Now ha- is a is a dad himself, right? It's oh, crazy, wow. but he's still my tenant. 16 and a half years later.
2: That's uh, that's that's an awesome, awesome, awesome story, dude. I, I love that. That is really cool. And I think sometimes the best education, just go back a little bit. Is you know you're doing your due diligence, but sometimes you have to go with your gut uh, and, and then jump in. And, and pay pay a little bit of tuition, but but kind of learn as you go. So nah, that's awesome. That worked out. That's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got really lucky, I feel like, in that scenario because I didn't have any of the like the application process and my screening methods that I leverage now. And I just kind of went with my gut on that. And I do have that in, in my application process now, is there's a feel factor, but that's only 10%. And my feel factor then was about 80% of what I was leveraging because I still had a general application, but I was just doing the very basics at that point. So I definitely got lucky. Um, But over the course of the years, I mean, I've been doing Section 8 now for for 16 years now, you know, since she was my first one, she's still my tenant. And, um, you know, and I've done uh, third party, private, and I've done executive rentals. And the only two evictions I've ever done is an executive rental one. And my very first one of the story I just explained prior to my section eight tenant, I've only done, I've done two evictions though. And none of them are section eight,
1: you know, I love that. So I I love it when people bust myths that sometimes section eight tenants are the worst tenants. Right. And you just, you yeah. kind of a living walking example of that and maybe this is a good time like you have a wealth of experience mike 16 years 17 years of investing in real estate you've done evictions so you've kind of been through the ring of fire so to speak how i, I mean what really caught my attention was that you told me you actually invest in a lot in like condos and hoas and this is a very interesting strategy we you typically only hear about single family homes multifamily we don't hear about condos or hoas Ah, uh, type of properties that often. Can you just share with us why you decided to invest in that type of asset class, and then maybe I can ask about the pros and cons afterwards. But just tell us, like, what, how did you even stumble in, upon that, or did you make a, a active, conscious decision to go invest in that type of asset?
0: Yeah, sure, Ken. Yeah, yeah. I would say it likely goes against the grain of many, you know, books and things that you read about, and you know, many are about multifamily, many are about. Um, you know, it's a numbers game, you know, get 30 units under one roof. That's the way to go. Now I'm not saying you can't do that in a, in a garden style condo complex. Of course you can, right. Cause these are 18 to 20 units per building. And that's kind of what I'm doing now, right. I'm picking them off one by one though, rather than one loan and getting 20, but I ended up what, so I've had experience in both. So my first unit was a condo. I bought it as a college, you know, recent college grad, and I still own that unit. And I, and then I, in the meantime though, I had picked up uh, two different single family units. So I started experiencing some things that I just was like, wow, I didn't even think about this. Like the numbers were great. And I should note to, to everybody, most of my units, I've managed from 825, 850 miles away. So, and I don't have a property management company. So my model, you know, was kind of created in reverse engineering style where I didn't go into it purposely looking for just condos and townhomes. I found from my experience, though, a single family home, we could start, you know, essentially just from the outside, right? And and these are things that I had to maintain. So, you know, driveways, sidewalks, grass, trees, shrubbery, doorbells, fences, awnings, um, you know, outdoor spigots, outlets. I haven't even mentioned roof, siding, windows. You know, the list goes on and on. Some people have sore problems, septic problems, uh, grading issues, sloping issues and I'm still on the outside guys, right? So (laughs) yeah, man, you have outdoor screens, uh, sliding doors. These are things that I had experienced though, as, uh, as an investor with my single family homes, because especially my executive rental, that, that house was super nice. I mean, it's now valued at like 850,000. That house though, gave me more headaches and granted, the appreciation was good and the numbers were fantastic, of course. Um, but, when you peel the onion back a little bit and you start realizing, wait a minute though, I have a job. I want have, I want have a family. And I, how much does my time worth? point? Because I, although you could have a property management company, which I did have actually with that single family home, they were calling me all the time, the property management company, They're like, Hey Mike, we got another issue. You know, we, I literally had my water main break. Um, the landscaper accidentally somehow hit the line. He was out there aerating And I'm like, how is this even possible? But either way, it happened. So I'm like shutting off the water. I'm dealing with that with my tenant. Uh, You know, windows broke from a tree branch that hit it one time. It's like, but those are things on the outside of the building, guys, right? That is a long-winded answer. But that's what a single family home consists of on the outside. We haven't even gotten inside yet. And the numbers that, you know, why the numbers don't work on the inside either. Or why a townhome and a condo is more appealing on the inside. But I'll stop there, Kent. Yeah, so that's. You know, on the outside alone, that's the things that you don't experience with a condo <laughs> or town home. I don't have any of those items. None of them. None of them that I listed off.
1: I could just imagine a listener going back now and pressing rewind is like, okay, here's all the different problems that's going to come up from a single family home.
2: Because this is yeah. like,
1: Dana and I talked about this before. Dane is like, I don't, economies of scale doesn't make sense for a single family no home. that's why they went right into the multi-family side so this is right. interesting um okay you yeah. know that you listed all these issues on the outside all right you just scared everybody away from investing in single family I, home. I uh, missed tell us about the pros I missed a few critical ones too that have happened my
0: gutters my gutters clogged and broke and hit a window i forgot about <laughs> that i'm like thinking back here my gutters my uh yeah, I mean, there's just bunch. I had fencing issues with the dog.
1: I'm like, oh my gosh, I
0: got to get rid of this situation.
1: <laughs> but tell but us more yeah. of the pros then. What are the pros? Are, is it just the exact opposite of everything you just talked about? Like, tell us the pros of why you would invest in an HOA property like a condo or a townhome.
0: Oh, the pros of an HOA, sure. So those are the negatives of a single family on the outside. We could talk about inside too, but I'll talk about the pros of a condo and a townhome, which you could think of the opposite for a single family. So. The pros of the condos and the townhomes, you don't have any of the stuff I just listed. So there's no outside issues really whatsoever to worry about. You have lawn care, you have siding, you have windows, you have roof, all taken care of. There's something called an MSA, Master Service Insurance Agreement, that usually covers a a lot of the stuff, if not almost everything that you can encounter from an insurance claim. Now you do get small, you know then you get the condos insurance, which is substantially less, guys. It is three to four times less. Go ahead and quote me on that, guys, because I will... I will beg to differ if you have a different number, but I've done these. I've had single family, you know, like I said, and I have a lot of condos and I have townhomes and it is three to four times less in insurance. My insurance for my condos on average is like 280 bucks a year. It's a year. So anyway, because my master service policy. So you do have an HOA cost, right? You could say, oh, but you're paying your HOA dues. Well, sure. But that's, those are offsetting certain things though. Like keep in mind, I mean, the HOA is offsetting all those big ticket costs that you would have for repairs. And then on top of that, you go inside a condo in a townhome. The typical, and now Google this, guys. I mean, I have. The typical size of a ta- of a townhome condo, we'll just stick with a garden-style condo. I have five or six of those, is 882 square feet. That's nationwide average. The average size right now of a single-family detached dwelling is 2301 2301 Why does that matter? You could say, but Mike, you have a cost per square foot or you know rent per square foot. Well, guys, we're talking affordable housing. Let's remember, it's all about beds and heads. It is not about the size and the amenities that is being offered. It doesn't mean that you don't offer high quality. It just means you don't need all the ancillary things, which includes hallways, fancy hallways, high ceilings, cathedral ceilings, extra windows, extra you know ceiling fans, garbage disposals. You know these are things that you get in, in typically in a single family out, exterior outlets, decking, side you know all these things. You don't have to worry about that in the condo and you get a lot less square footage. You know, almost three times the size is a single family and you get this same amount in rent, guys. So if you keep a high quality product with, you know, good and I'm all about good counters, good kitchen, good supplies, you know, good quality items, good flooring. LVP flooring is wonderful. Lasts a long time. It's more durable than carpet. And I do that to all my units. I really high quality units before the tenants move in. And so that helps me immensely. And I still get the same amount in rents. And I don't have a lot of investor competition. I'll be honest, guys, I don't get into back and forth. Like I did with single families, a lot of investors don't care to even look at a condo or townhome. So I'm not typically in competition with these, you know, it's usually just third party, you know, young couples, right, trying to buy that I'm kind of up against. So I can easily... I'm sorry, but I could outbid them any day of the week, right? I could do an all cash deal. They're not ready for that. They're probably doing an FHA loan, so it's a lot easier too from a competition perspective as well. That's
2: last, um, I'm um, sorry. Sure, go ahead. No, keep keep going. Yeah. I
0: okay. It. Yeah. My my last point here too is, um, you know, before there's probably more, but is the HOA uh, itself that is self policing, guys? Because so the HOA bylaws, the covenants are fantastic ways to have eyes and ears and neighbors watching over your property. And if you have a good screening and you have a good application process, you're not going to have a problem because you're going to get good people in there anyway. And you set the tone by really having a high quality product that you're giving them when they move in. Right. And so the HOA bylaws, you want to read the covenants fine, fine tooth. You know, you really want to look through them though. You want to make sure that there's no, you know, things that prohibit you being able to rent it out or you being able to have a specific tenant in there with a certain credit score. There's places in Florida I know that do have some criteria in there. You know, there is the Affordable Care uh, Act itself that protects from discrimination against these folks. However, there's, of course, loopholes because typically uh, affordable housing tenants, housing choice voucher tenants have low credit scores, have low income. Now, HOAs have, you know, maybe learned that and they have criteria there. But as long as you read through it all before you buy, make sure it's looking good. And we have criteria that you can look at in my training. You're good to go. And you can buy it. And then you kind of set it and forget it for the most part because the neighbors, I have a few good neighbors, you know, Dane, being in multi-units, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, where you have a few neighbors that are eyes and ears for you that will reach out to me. I know a guy that lives right across the hall from three of my Mm -hmm. units, and he's a great guy, and he'll reach out to me. In fact, he's going to sell his to me, and hopefully, um, you know, shout out to him if he listens at some point. But um, I love you, man. I want your unit. but uh, Yeah, he's eyes and ears.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he's eyes and
0: ears, and then there's um there's a sense of community. There's a real sense of community, guys, too. That it actually is what was eye-opening to me to realize they they start meeting their neighbors in these hallways. They're not nervous. My tenants aren't nervous, and we'll be honest here, right? Most most of my housing choice vouchers are are young single moms. They're vulnerable. They need a safe, sound place that's secure. I have security cameras there. We have a secured front door. You have to punch in a code before you even get to the, the hallway of which your unit is in, they love that stuff. That And I don't blame them, I love it for them. If I, it was my daughter, I would be happy and feel safe and sleep well if I knew she was in one of my units there. This is a very safe sound place too. So it's, it's really nice too when you walk in there. So it's like all these good things that a lot of investors shy away from. They're like, we hate HOAs, it, it kills the uh, ROI, the the you know operating expenses as well. They look at these numbers and it's like, well, time out guys, like, is it really, are we sure? Because I, it, I'm not experiencing that and I experienced both with the single families. So yeah, those are some of the, some of the reasons.
2: Yeah. And I, I'll ask you to do a deep dive if you don't mind here in a second, but that you kind of, you started, well, you kind of answered my question is Jared and I are always open to, you know, anything, you know? And, and so we have looked at.
0: And, and Jared Dane
2: is somebody, oh, you know, I'm sorry, Jared, Jared's my brother and my my partner uh, with Aspen. oh Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so he's in he's in Colorado. I'm here in Ohio. And we're primarily here in Columbus, Ohio area. Um, and so we have actually looked at a handful of different condo deals also. But yet yeah, to your point, like when we were underwriting it, it was the, the HOA fee that always seemed to kill the, the deal for us. Do you have any tips or advice on that? Obviously, we went yeah. back and, and we're, we never try to bully a seller or be. Hyper emotional. It's, it's a transaction. It's, it's, it's a numbers game, as we've talked numbers about game. in all these other podcasts. And we just showed them look, this doesn't pencil, <clears throat> excuse me, this doesn't pencil, uh, you know, and it would have to be a price reduction type of deal. So, number one, uh, any advice on that? Number two, and you kind of already had uh, answered this, you kind of look at the HOA as an Ally, and we were always a little concerned. Like, oof, okay. Well, what if they want to raise rate uh, the, the 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 dues, or what if they want to do a, a massive capital outlay that we don't really necessarily want, and that's gonna you know reduce the 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 operating accounts and potentially force some strain. It, I guess it, it was kind of us not knowing enough. Maybe we. I wish we would have known you three years ago. <laughs> because you absolutely know your stuff. But yeah, I guess how do you answer those? And then we'll we'll talk about a a deep dive maybe.
0: Yeah, sure, Dane. Um, Yeah, and that's cool, man. That's awesome. You work with your brother. Um, I don't think my brother and I, that would work out. So I commend you there. That's awesome.
2: (laughs) We'll we'll see how it goes. We're we're only four years in. We'll we'll give it some more time.
0: (laughs) Hey, man, that's good. Well done. Four years is pretty good anyway. Um, But that's awesome. But yeah, um good question for sure, right? And that's like the normal reaction to an investor too that I get. Like I'll be at like so I have three kids, 2, 6 and 8 and you know, I'll be at one of their events or something like that and I'll talk to a parent and you know, those are some of the things. They're like, "Wait, condos? What are you talking about? How does that work? I don't th- I don't think that works, Mike." It's like, "Oh, well, all right, you, you teach me, right?" It's like <laughs> But uh those are the common thoughts and for sure. So I look at the HOA and I will say this, Dane, you're probably looking at it from buying the entire building, but I'm gonna I'm gonna approach this answer from the perspective of the general listener here that's looking to get their hands dirty in a real estate investing, and you're looking to buy one or two units in the next six to twelve, eighteen months or so. Um, I'm gonna look at it from that angle and not the totality of the building itself.
2: But and that's actually so- great because we, we were only looking at buying. I, it was like a four hundred or five hundred unit complex, and we were going to end up with like forty of those units. So kind of a, a, a smaller scale like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Still big, but that's awesome. Yeah, that's really exciting for sure. Um, and it's never too late. You can go back after this call and make a call maybe over there. Maybe but, I will. Um...
2: <laughs> maybe I'll have you <laughs> call for me. <laughs>
0: hey, you never know. And I can plug the numbers in for sure. I have a I have a you know a pretty good analyzer tool and a and a forecaster tool as well. Um, We're pretty good with the numbers, but I'll say this. So, you know, so the question being just to recap is, you know, how do you offset the cost of the HOA? Because the HOA fees, sometimes they vary, of course, Um, anywhere my units range from, you know, maybe I'm trying to think like my lowest one is like 125 and all the way up to two. And that's $125 a month, all the way up to $236 a month down here. Now the question is like, doesn't that eat into your, your operating expense so much that it hurts your, your cash on cash return, right? It makes the numbers not be as, as juicy and, and as good. And my answer is surprisingly, it doesn't at all. And there's multiple reasons why one of them being what I hit on earlier is the cost of insurance is three times less on a condo or townhome because they have a master service policy. Secondly, um, there's other costs that typically are intertwined in, in that HOA, for me, for instance, water was accounted for in the HOA dues themselves. So I get a, um, water and sewer reimbursement from my tenants, which surprisingly is a pretty big number. It's actually like $68 a unit. Um, because now I'm covering the water and sewer expense for their utility. So suddenly, and I'll be honest here, these are real numbers. So it's $155 on those that OOB unit, the older to beach unit. It's $155 as the HOA dues. I immediately get $68 bucks back for on reimbursement for utilities on, on the water and sewer utility that I cover for that tenant. Because there's a utility uh, piece to when you're filling out paperwork and what ones are you covering, what ones are you not. Suddenly, I'm also down on insurance by 3X. So Compared to a single family home, I think the average um, insurance cost is $1,400. And my average unit, like I said, is $280. So you do the math on that. I think it's $84. I'm saving. So suddenly, I'm already right off the bat. You take $155 minus the $68. uh, Kent, maybe you're good at math here. What does that come to? And then subtract $84 from that. And now what what number are we at, guys? Listeners, you're probably at like 15 bucks. Suddenly what looked like $155 HOA due is actually only an additional OPEX of 15 bucks. But time out, there's more as the infomercials go. Um, what else are you getting with the HOA? I'm getting a team of people, a team of eyes that are like policing my units. I, I, I become market agnostic. It doesn't matter where I'm at because I have a team of people policing this I got security cameras it mitigates for cost but yeah that no, that's, that's cool. probably yeah. it in a nutshell Dane like when you when you look at it that way
2: yeah no I love it that's that's gold really I mean I, and I know and again this is probably two at least two to three years ago so I don't remember all the specifics but uh maybe I will go back and revisit that and just kind of look at it and see if we could have maybe made that deal work uh one more question about the HOA and, and, and again the we haven't looked at a condo in a while. <clears throat> As an owner of X amount of units, it, just for round numbers, let's say there's 100 units in that complex and you own two, do you, are there voting rights and things like that with HOAs where you guys all vote on, do we want to replace roofs, and do you only get 2% of the say, or, or how does that? what does that look like? I can't remember the specifics on that. Yeah.
0: Well, in good question, Dane. And from my learnings is it's not a one size fits all answer either. The covenants and the bylaws aren't all the same for different complexes, even within the same state. Um, and now I've run into that because I own in different towns in Maine and they have different HOA bylaws and covenants and restrictions. Um, but in the one particular one where I have five units, it does, it, you know, the, the, if you own, you know, two thirds, then you have a 66% voting power. Um, And also, though, one of the questions that a lot of realtors will ask when you're going through the financing is what's the rent to own ratio? Now, interesting enough, not always does that even matter within the HOAs though. So sometimes not only for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and conforming loans does that matter, it oftentimes matters within the complex itself. The complex says, hey, we want to police this. We don't want one owner owning two thirds of this compound turns out not all rules and bylaws are the same. Cause in my particular complex, there's no restriction. I may, I checked on that. I said, guys, is there a problem here? If I, if I buy 10 units here, they said, no, there's no restriction. I said, just to confirm. And I sent it in an email. <laughs> I can own every single, I would literally said this date. I'm like, I can own every single unit in this complex and you guys, there's no restrictions that exist yeah. at this current moment in time. And they said, absolutely not. I said, okay, good to know.
2: I was like, yeah, that that's another but, great point too, because we've run into that uh, in the past also. Where I uh, can't remember, they, they some of them would only is if this sounds right, only allow non-residents to own X percent of the of the units. If that makes sense, Um uh, that because- makes sense.
0: And one of the things you'll run into, and for the listeners with conforming conventional Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans, is it's usually a fifty percent ratio. As soon as a compound, a complex goes beyond 50%, and what I mean is the rent versus owner occupied. Once there's more renters in a complex by 1%, so 51%, you can't get a normal Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. Now that is something to consider, but I'm a long-term hold guy, meaning it's something to consider if you go and try to sell. Say you do own 75% of a complex, and now you want to sell it, and you want to sell them as individual. You're not selling it to a big-time investor. You're selling them one by one. Well, suddenly remembered now it's likely that the buyers are not going to be able to do conventional conforming Fannie Mae Freddie Mac that's your usual FHA loans it's usual bank loans you know Bank of America loans you can't get that they won't allow that it's restricted from a lending practice best practice because they're concerned right. that their collateral is too risky at that point there's there's too many investors in here we don't know the investors can hit the road and say you know we're out of here yeah
2: yeah, yeah. and that, thanks for uh bringing that up that, that I'm having flashbacks to, like I said, three years ago, and, and even the first property my wife and I ever owned was a little condo uh, and a condo community, and we, that's where I first had heard that owner occupancy level, and they were excited to have us because we were going to be in there, uh, obviously, owning and and, uh, and living. So um, awesome, nice do you job. mind doing a, like a deal, like a deep dive on some of your deals and um and maybe comparing any differences and or similarities between condos versus multifamily versus single family, like you have been. This is this has been awesome.
0: Um yeah, yeah. Um I'm thinking for the sake of a listener who probably doesn't have a visual, should I just I should just say it out loud rather than you know, yeah. yeah. So yeah. let me think of like so the last deal I purchased, um so I got I got a little slow, so I stopped in last May. So May two thousand twenty two was the last deal I bought, which I got lucky in a sense because it was most of my units recently have been off market deals. Um, and I say I got lucky in a sense because what it caused me to do was pull a lot of my money out of my brokerage account. So always making moves on the stock side as well because you don't want your down payment money to just be sitting stagnant with an inflationary world that we're in. Um, so I kept it in a brokerage account, you know, and I started pulling it out because I bought actually four units pretty recent time frame so back in may 2022 i i purchased uh, another condo in that complex and it cost it was 170,000 praised at 210 don't tell the seller but um, i was happy about that but we did it as a fisbo for sale by owner guys so definitely get creative too i always recommend this too in my training as well always try to buy off-market deals. And what is an off-market deal? It's one that you just see you like and you start sending them emails. Find out who the owner is. Go to your government site. Find out who owns it and send them, you know, and Google them and find out what their LinkedIn is as well. I've done this. Yes, guys, you can do this. It's perfectly legal. (laughs) But off-market deals are the way to go. You're going to get a better deal. So listeners are like, hey, let me look this up. How do you get this for 170? You will see in the history of it, though, I bought it for 170. Um, it's a 1988 garden style condo. I got it for 170,000 and maybe that sounds like a lot because it's also two bedroom, but the thing that you want to look at and something that my analyzer tool can do is you plug in, you basically, it's actually um, interactive. You just push where on a geographic map and it's going to tell you all the way down to the County level. So you can start at a state level and it's a heat map basically telling you what the FMR guys. So fair market rent rates that's established, Um, I think it goes back to from like 1974 when what happened was the government said, hey, we need private owners like me, like you, like you guys, the listeners to start purchasing and participating in the housing choice voucher landlord program because the government was so swamped, right? Inundated shortage of housing. So anyway, the FMR is what's critical too. So you want it when you're analyzing these deals. So I'm able to look look at that and I already knew because I have units there. So, the FMR on that particular unit was $1755. So, $1,755, guys, for a $170,000 unit. Now you're like, hey, does that pass the 1% rent to
1: value? Wow. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I love yeah, it. it. It's, a
0: good, it's a good deal, right? So, it passes the 1% rent to value ratio that a lot of listeners and that guys has only been a craze probably for the past 10 years. But I can remember rent to value was never really looked at. You know, I'm old, but, you know, but. <laughs> That's just something that really worked, but we got to be prepared for that to dip down. The 1% rule might not be as attainable with higher interest rates and prices being as high as they were. They're still coming down, but they inflated really fast. Historically, there's never been a time like that 20% per year the past two and a half years. But anyway, so back to my deal. So it was 170. I get 1755. I do have an HOA of 155. Um, and I got a rate, though, of 4.875 because that was in May. I rate locked, though, in April you know, a 90 day rate lock in April, I watched the rates soar. I actually think I got it in late March. So I got it at 4.875. You guys have your mortgage calculators out there. You can put it in 4.875. I put 20% down on a 30 year uh, fixed term. Um, And I'm thinking here, I got 3000 in seller concession as well on top of that guys, because it was a FISBO, like, which was unheard of, right? Seller concession left everybody's vocabulary for the past two and a half years. Uh um, right. my buddy's like, what the hell? I was like, yeah, man, I, I gotta ask. I asked, I got, uh, that was the max, right? 2% was the max you can get back. So I, you know, it wasn't quite 3000, but yeah. So all in, uh, oh, and taxes are 16, uh, 1647. Um, so you plug all that in guys and you'll, you'll have the numbers. And I think I, I net, um, s- 700 a month after nice. all expenses. So I'm netting 700 a month. I think my cash on cash return was 20, 21%. I am going off memory. I can plug it in, but I don't want it. like I said, it's not a visual, so I'm not going to, but yeah, it's like somewhere around, I was making 21% cash on cash return on that deal. And that was in 2022, right? Like pretty much historically, when we look back, you're going to say, that was probably the worst year to buy. Like don't buy in 2022. It was like the peak and rates went up and your values were almost the highest they could be. It was yeah. almost like the worst time. It's almost like buying in 05, which is when I bought <laughs> my first condo in that complex. So yeah. both, both eras, I bought in 05 and I bought in 2022 in that same complex. And guess what? My one in 05, my tenant's still there. The one in 05 is paid off. It's a cash cow, absolutely bringing me in. 1700 a month profit, net profit, because it's paid off. Um, but yeah, so that that's there's a unit right there. So deep dive on that one. So those are the numbers. And I bring in about 700 a month on that.
1: Well, let me let let me jump in here then, Mike, because we talked about all the benefits of buying a property in the HOA area where the HOA lowers some of your insurance costs, but also your maintenance fees, right? So what are you setting aside for maintenance or capex for sure. your properties just because you have an HOA fee? Like give us some tactical examples of what are you using for your assumptions for maintenance and capex in, in yep. how you underwrite these deals?
0: Yeah. Great question, Kent. So first off, guys, I recommend all listeners use yourselves. I'm sure you guys love Microsoft Excel. So I live in Microsoft Excel, so I can actually say it's not an assumption. It's actually actually historical records have proven to me my exact dollar amount. I track every single expense on every single unit. My accountant loves that. Um, It helps in many different ways. So my average expense, I've come down to it's about 5% of rents. So 5% of rent. So that's a, that's different than, you know, some people go off value. Some people call it like 1% of value. I've found it to be roughly 5% of rent. So what does that come to? It's about 90 bucks a month. So I put that in my forecaster. That's in that 21% cash on cash return. Yeah. I put vacancy in there as well. I just do that for a cushion. I have zero vacancy, everybody, zero. Yeah. Like literally, (laughs) you guys won't have, you will not have vacancy if you follow the program and you effectively have an application, have a screening process. You could follow my model if you want. We'll talk more about that. But um, I have zero vacancy, repeat zero. I can't tell you enough. I usually have a tenant move in the day after my tenant moves out. And I don't have a tenant move out on average 7.8 years. And the only reason my two tenants, I only had two tenants move out, man. The other ones that moved out is because I sold my complex. I sold my single family. So they've moved out. I had, you know, and I don't have a lot of units, guys. I'm not going to lie. I have eight units. I at one point had 11 units, but I'm happy. I'm content and the numbers work. And I put maybe three hours a month in the real estate, maybe three hours a month on all these units. And that comes because I have my HOA, because I have my systematic way. But yeah, that's what I'd say. Uh, I don't say, I know, Kent, I I put in a 5% factor, for uh for those expenses for maintenance expenses and i also account for the vacancy but the vacancy is zero but i still put two weeks of vacancy on every unit and
1: so mike one of our goals uh, so, go ahead Dan.
2: i'm sorry I, I was just gonna say mike that's a quarter of what we set aside per unit uh yep. for capex in in multifamily you know roughly i i didn't know there was going to be this much math uh on today's uh podcast <laughs> you, me
0: neither i didn't know either <laughs>
2: I probably would have called in sick. So uh, <laughs> no, but that's that's tremendous. I, I I'm loving all of the the information that that you're giving us here for sure. That yes, yeah. it just shows how lean. And I knew just to kind of go back to three years ago, I knew that it would be a hell of a lot easier to manage a condo yeah. versus you know a multi-family complex or a single-family home. But I didn't know just how crisp and clean and and kudos to you, dude, like, you know, your numbers and that's, I mean, we talk about this all the time. If you don't know your numbers, you got to get out and, and you know those numbers inside and out and and you've got it down to an, an art. So yeah, good for you. Yeah,
0: no. Yeah. And I know my numbers well enough to realize I'm kicking myself that I don't own more units. Right. But I don't kick it myself too hard because I have a real good lifestyle life of leisure and, you know, I still have a corporate job. Because at some point, Dane, I, and it sounds like you are a working man as well as an investor. At some point, though, you're going to get to a point where it just is not manageable. It's not it's not fun to have both going. And I'm probably, I'm approaching that moment, but it's not until, and, and I love my job. I love my people. I love what I do. I've been doing it 10 years. But at some point, you got to step back and say, hey, I'm, I got to bow out of that because I know real estate is, is a deep, deep passion, right? I love yeah. the intrinsic values that you get out of helping section eight holders too, because it's not, I don't, the, I don't have a problem with any of my tenants. And if anything, I get gifts that surprise the heck out of me. I got a gift from one of my new tenants and I'm like, I don't even know who this is from. And I had to ask a couple of tenants and they're like, oh my God, oh, you got the chocolate. So I was like, oh, is that from you? Oh, thank you so much. You know, I didn't get that from private market private market. I mean, all the only time I heard from them, I dreaded those phone calls. I'm like, oh gosh, what are, what are they going to tell me about now? But yeah, Dean, yeah, I mean, I kudos to you, man, if you're able to juggle both, because it, it is not easy, but it is easy with this model. But also this model is way easier to manage because I don't have a lot of units. This is, I'm not biting off too much guys. And that's the key thing for listeners to understand. You don't have to quit your day job. You don't have to, you know, stop everything you're doing in your life of leisure to worry about losing sleep, to worry about these big ticket items. I go back to why condos and townhomes are fantastic because I don't have nightmares. I had those nightmares. Like I said, I had three different single family units and holy cow, they never cease to amaze me. I had crawl space issues. I'm like, what the hell is a crawl space anyway? What's going on here? <laughs> like, a crawl space barrier? What are you talking about? I have to have a barrier? And I didn't even know what it was about. you know? So I'm down there in there. I'm looking in the crawl space. I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like... I'm like getting paid good money and I'm driving over there and I'm digging, I'm going to a crawl space. Like this doesn't happen in condos and townhomes, man. Like there's so many different unique things in, you know, that uh, townhomes and condos, but also this model fosters for for lifestyle.
2: Well, Kent Kent and I were both smiling when you mentioned that I'm uh, also a working man. Uh, because I don't know how many days, I don't have the countdown timer on yet like my business partner does, but in three weeks, I will no longer be, I, I, I'll be unemployed. I'm, I'm selling my my medical practice and I'm looking to partner with good people that know systems and, and have, uh, you know, have growth potential. And, and the whole time I'm listening to you, I'm like, oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, congrats, Dane. That's amazing. It's got to be an insane feeling, right? Like, that's what I. I'm like, uh, man. I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to do it because I keep getting pulled back into the corporate world. And yeah. like, I like I said, I love it. I love the people. I think they love me for the most part. Um, but you know, that's awesome because like, I can only imagine when you don't have to look at your phone, you don't have to look at your emails, and you're like your true passion. It sounds like is investing, is real estate, is helping people. And I know yeah. that's my calling as well. And it's like. I'm just not there yet. I have three young kids, and I, I got to keep that that W two income too is also helping me stay good with my financing with my Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So you got to look at it that way too for me. Yeah, for sure. For but that's sure. awesome, mm-hmm. Dane. Kudos, man. That's that's insane.
2: That's congratulations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can tell Dana and I are just waiting on the silence. Like, hey, when your neighbor sells that other unit across the hallway, yeah. like, let <laughs> us partner with you, man. Come on, oh, yeah. clearly you found <laughs> the gem. You found a diamond in the rough there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, there's you, a lot you know, of. Them. My, What's so cool, and this is why we love bringing on different guests uh, onto this podcast, is like everyone can succeed either in the big multifamily like Dane, developers like Alvin, and also you could just have eight units like Mike and be tremendously successful. And I want people to feel inspired yeah. by this because like, you don't need a thousand units to live the life that you want and to be able to spend the time with your kids that you're probably looking for. You don't need to rush yeah. into and dive into and quit your job right away, like you said, Mike. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, maybe if we were to try to make it more realistic for people, like what are you making like per month on a casual basis across your eight properties? Like what is that in, what does that look like for you right now? from a cash perspective.
0: Yeah, great question, Ken. Yeah, I'm happy to, you know, full disclosure, right? So I make about 6,800 right now and I have projections of rent increases because the FMR numbers are there and I have a whole systematic way there. I'll be nearing 8,000 a month in profit. I collect just about around 15,000 a month in rents. So I'll be, you know, bringing in pretty good income, right? Like, I mean, we're talking almost six figures at this point. Of, of income that's after all expenses, so yeah, those are my numbers. And
1: I just one people always, guys, it.
0: what's crazy, Kent, yeah. is I did the numbers this year. So, what's a fun thing to do? And Dane, yeah, I do love my spreadsheets, so I know these numbers because of the spreadsheets, but um, and I'm not looking at them, but um, I increased rents across the board out of all my units by I think it ended up being 14. I kid you not, it's 14, guys. And understand this too. There, and I listen to some podcasts, you know, and, and Ken Heck, I listen to yours sometimes, and and it's fun. It's fun. I, I shouldn't say heck, I even listen to yours. Yours is a good podcast. It's affordable housing, right? <laughs> but um some of the numbers that I hear and stuff, I'm just like, this doesn't seem right. But understand this when I increase my rents and when I write my leases for my tenants, it's written in there, your rent will go up every single year to the max FMR rate. They sign it without hesitation because I've educated them. Their rent rate has nothing to do with what they're going to pay in rent. It's 30% of their adjusted household income. 30% of their adjusted household income. It's not 30% of the rent. So I go to the max every single year for 16 years. I go to the very max. That's a, that's a fact. Whenever I increase my single family units, my, my executive rental, And my non-executive rental, my just third-party private market ones, it is an arduous, horrendous experience for me as a landlord. I go through so much pain and agony. How are you doing this to me, Mike? What are you doing for my unit? Are you going to finally redo the kitchen? Are you going to get me that new washer and dryer? It's like, wait, I have all sorts of different expenses, guys, going up. Like I'm only going up like 100 bucks. I'm I'm going up like 4% on my single family's. And I'm telling you right now. So my FMR on and all I own now, guys, are Section Eight. So when I say these numbers, this is has nothing to do with third party and executive rentals. I average increase by fourteen percent, but my take home increase. So there's a difference, right? When you look at the numbers, that's not my take. My average increase in take home was thirty percent this year. When I get done increasing my rents and my take home becomes around eight thousand a month of profit, it'll be a thirty percent change in one year. It's not even one year, guys, because with the pandemic, they were going every six months, they were changing the rent rates in permitting landlords to adjust their rent rates every six months during the pandemic. So I adjusted my rents in June of 2022. And from June of 2022, to now January of 2023, the new FMRs that came out averaged an increase of 14% increase in six months, guys. FMRs are fantastic. FMRs, though, are a depiction of the 40th percentile of a home. Now, that in itself is a problem that I see with Section 8 and the Housing Choice Voucher Program in, in, in general, because they only are targeting the 40th percentile and below of homes. So if that makes sense to listeners. This Anything above the 40th percentile in any region is pretty much off market for Section 8 housing, which that in itself is a problem. But either way, I target the 40th percentile because that's what the government targets. So we're talking 14% hike in six months, and my take-home increase by
1: 30%. And these are real numbers, guys. How often do you guys think about getting a six-figure job from just spending three hours a month managing your properties? And you don't have to make the argument. Like Mike said, Like people forget about the simple things where people are going to fight tooth and nail with you on every $50 or $25 increase. In Section 8, you are not passing that on to the tenant. So that's a great great another advantage of investing in affordable housing, particularly in section eight for the voucher holders there. Um, yep. I mean, Mike, we would we have to have to ask like, hey, what are some horror stories? <clears throat> have you had any bad experiences investing in affordable housing? Like we, we, if there is, like we should definitely know about it because what's so important about this podcast and I've told you this offline is when bad things happen, we want to hear about those stories so we can hear how other people <laughs> dealt with it so that yeah. we can actually know what to do when you remove that fear it gets more people involved in investing in affordable housing so just curious like did you have any bad stories either with a tenant or also with your hoa who knows like maybe there's a big special assessment we'd love to kind of hear uh, from you yeah no yeah and you're right kent right like
0: we've all if you've been doing if you have <laughs> my first horror story happened in the first three months right that was one of my first ones and that wasn't affordable housing so we'll we'll not talk about that one and we won't talk about my executive rental horror story as well. That involved the crawl space issue. And I'm like, why are you even down in the crawl space? Why do you care what's in the crawl space? Um, that was my executive rental one, but yeah. So from affordable housing, I will be honest, guys, like if you screen them and you have a good application process, you shouldn't have too many horror stories, but it doesn't mean you're not, you're going to totally eliminate them. Um, I did buy in the wrong area for the wrong reasons. And I will say I, that zip code, <laughs> I, here, anyone can look it up, 27610. It, it is Raleigh, North Carolina. I love Raleigh, North Carolina. The numbers were unbelievably uh, uh, huge for me. My return was enormous. I was getting over 50% return on cash on one of these zip codes that I invested in. And I learned quickly via gunfire, hitting my building and seeing my unit on TV in a police raid, Thankfully, it wasn't my particular unit, but of course, my tenant was scared out of her mind. One of the bullets literally hit the siding of my building, of my unit. I had a corner unit townhome that I bought. I mean, heck, I'll never forget it. It's Dilmar Court, and this I got rid of it in 2016. But I bought it, and the numbers were amazing. I bought it for eighty-eight thousand. It's a three-bedroom townhome. Um, seemed good. Seemed awesome. I rented it out in no time. And quickly I learned though, there's 16 units in that complex and probably 15 of them had drugs being sold out of them. Mine being the 16th unit was the only one that didn't, that I was aware of. It was really bad. And I didn't know that though, because what what do you see? You don't see much during the day. It all came out at nighttime. And that was something that I did not realize until my tenant moved in. And she said, Mike, there is cars coming and going all night long, starting at about 8 p.m., ending until about 4 a.m. And then suddenly three months into that, a, a gunfire happened. It hit my unit. Um, you know, my tenant was perfectly fine. She actually didn't even know the the one of the bullets hit my unit, um, but the police did, right? And they're investigating. There's crime scene tape. My tenant called, like really upset. I told her, look, do not worry. Move out. Like, don't worry about the lease. You're, we're welcome to move out. We will abate this contract. I don't have a problem. I had some paperwork that I had to sign. I got it right out of there. And um, unfortunately, I gave it a second shot still because the numbers were so darn good. And I'm a young, younger guy at that point. I needed the money. And I ran into a very similar problem. And I ended up having to sell that unit after 13 months. and And I had two different tenants. And it just didn't work. So there's my nightmare story. And when I sold it, I still made money on it because the numbers were that good. Um, but it was a nightmare. It, I, it worried the heck out of me. My wife didn't want me driving there. She said, Where are you going? And I, I took a good friend of mine and I have a concealed carry, I'll be honest. So, Dane, I'm going in there. I had an LC9, um, you know, and I had one in the chamber. I mean, it was scary. It was scary. And I got confronted because a bee was out front. I'm like, Damn it, I got to get into this unit. And there's these two carpenter bees. I can remember this. And, he, and the guy's like, Yo, homie, you all good? And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And I'm like trying to get these bees out. And I just like walk through. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? But I can remember my heart rate up and I can remember my wife not happy with me going there. And I had to get out of there. So that is a nightmare, guys. It's one of those things like, and I always live by don't buy if you don't feel comfortable. I have two daughters, two young kids. So I look at it like, if you don't feel comfortable putting your daughter in the complex, probably don't buy it. Because guys and listeners, like you're just trying to buy a few units to change your lifestyle. Don't buy just because of the numbers. And that was something where I started learning about like single family homes. It's like, of course, the numbers are pretty good on the surface. But after three or four years of owning it, you're going to find all those things, not just on the outside, but on the inside, too, that exist that just don't happen with condos and townhomes as well. But there's my nightmare there, Ken. And that was that was a nightmare.
2: I, I could talk all day. and Ken has a little baby girl. I could talk all day about how girls change as guys. Your the way you see the world, uh, it does. <laughs> but yeah, I love good. it. Yeah, yeah, I always tell people, I, I I won't buy a property. I mean, I'll buy it if it's not great, but then by the time it's done re- being renovated, I I say this all the time, it I want to be able to live there. Would I live there? Yes. Okay. Then no. then this is good to go. But I like that even even better. Uh, bringing up well, myself. I uh,
0: I go a step further because. I've lived in some bad places personally. So like I where where I came from, what I, you know, we didn't grow up with money. My house was 975 square foot ranch of which probably 300 of those square feet were the basement. I don't know how they counted this place as that big, um, yeah. but it was safe. I'm from Augusta, Maine. But then when I moved and I was in college, I ended up buying, and I, we had to live where it was cheaper, man. We didn't have money. I didn't have, you know, parents giving me money or anything, man. We were nickel and diamond. So I don't say, hey, if I will, if... <laughs> I'll buy if I'll live in it. Cause
2: uh, I'll buy, I'll live in some really weird places, man. Yeah. The other thing I've learned uh, from my daughter and my wife now, I see it. I'm like, men are disgusting. We'll, we'll yeah. literally live anywhere. We'll eat yeah. anything. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That's that's a good point. That's a great point. Well, you've referenced it a couple of times and honestly, was the guy like, I've enjoyed every single second of this. Uh, you're obviously great at what you do. I love your systems. I love your knowledge. How do other people learn, um, you know, your systems? Your uh, how how do they pick your brain? I know you have an ebook and and other things, but like, yeah, yo, know, let's get that out there. And and I'm you know mark me mark me down as a as a subscriber or whatever awesome. uh, whatever the cost may be. I'll, I'll expense it to Kent. How's that?
0: Yeah, well, I actually, great news, great question too. So section8secrets.com, you can go to that. Um, it's really easy to sign up for it. And what it is, um, it's a platform. There's a e-course, as you mentioned. There's a, there, It's like an e-book too. There's a PDF file book that I had created. And it basically hits on like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, of course. But it's like, what is Section 8? So for those for those people that don't even really aren't familiar with Section 8, there's a little bit of history in there. It's how do you select properties? So I do a deep dive analysis, similar to what we talked about with single families and condos and townhomes. And it's up to you guys too, because of course, single families work. They definitely work. So you could do that you know, for sure. How to obtain financing is in there. Um, what's the tenant application process. I created a Google doc form guys, it's form fields, where it'll spit out in an email, because here's one thing in, that listeners should be aware of too. You will not have any problem finding a tenant. I promise you that. Within 24 hours, I typically, after I list my units, which I do Go Section Eight, I do Craigslist, but I also have contacts within the housing, the PHAs, the public housing authorities, that when they know one of my units is up and ready, they love to hear that. They're like, here, here's a here's a few tenants. And I send them a link. It's a free Google form that, that my applicants fill out. And within that application, though, there's a point system, they're form fields. And I value specific things and it's in the, it's in the training as well. But there's certain things that I high have high value of. And there's reasons for it, which is in the training. Uh, but it hits on all that stuff. It hits on property management. Should you hire a property manager or should you do it yourself? I'm a huge advocate, guys, especially for listeners that are just trying to get involved. Try it out first, guys. Try to property manage yourself, even though there's plenty of like reasons why you could property manage. But there's a couple things why. Now, I'm curious on Dane being an investor, like how he's found his experience with property management. Because mine, for those that don't, Know you know section eight really well and government housing and how that works. Property managers typically say yes to anything. I've learned this, yeah. I've tried them out. They don't all work, they don't all know. And there are nuances to understanding how to manage government housing properties. And they, yes, there is a difference, right? And I try to tell them that, and they're like, and then I have to get rid of them. I'm like, dude, no, you're you're killing me, man. Like, no, I can't do it this way. And we failed the inspections or something like that. So I've dabbled in it. And I've always managed it on my own, though, because it just didn't work out. Now, guys, you could find somebody good, maybe so. But, Dane, I am actually curious. So I will stop there. Like, do, have you had really good success? Like, kudos. Like, great for you if you have. I hope you have. But no. I ran into some trouble there.
2: Yeah. No, that's why Kent was laughing, too, I think. Because we literally, uh, before I left for the Caribbean, just changed uh, – and i'm hoping that this is a fix. it's now the largest uh, property management group in the state of ohio for affordable housing. they know, i was oh wow. like i was overwhelmed with their knowledge base, their connections, but th- this is our third or fourth property management group in 4 years. and and there's a variety wow. of reasons why some of them are great with section 8. they know that but they're too small. They're a mom and pop shop and they can't handle hundred. We have 168 units, even though they're all within five minutes, you know, they didn't have the systems. And then some, you know, we went with a larger company before them and it was just a nightmare across the board. I've interviewed, wow. yeah. uh, before we went with this large group, I interviewed two or three other property management groups that were highly recommended. Um, I love their systems either they didn't want to mess with section 8 affordable housing yeah and or they wouldn't go into these certain neighbors neighborhoods that we are in that we are in and, and are improving they want the easy you know a class b class um out maybe out in the country you know secondary or tertiary market where where it's more uh, simplistic so yep. yeah we've talked All about right. going vertical um we just didn't have the bandwidth uh between Jared yep. and I um, yeah it's working and so
0: yeah so what i found dane and just on that point so i'm sorry right for four in four years four property management for yeah. there's a lot of work that's a lot of that's a lot of cost that's a lot of work that's a lot of interviewing that's a lot of you know ambiguity not knowing anxiety losing sleep i can only imagine um and because i went through it on a very smaller scale and i was just like you guys know you're out of here like i had to like fire one of them after like three months i'm like this is crazy yeah. no you're not helping my tenant and their up fees were insane. There's a maintenance charge, there's all this stuff. I do think, Dane, at some point you strongly consider in house property management. You become like you have your own proprietary ways of doing things, mm-hmm. yeah. and it becomes an in house thing because you're big enough almost now. And right. but maybe that new company that's awesome that they're that that's what they manage because there's yeah. so many nuances and there's so many understandings of how to pick an applicant, how to talk to these applicants, how to treat them, and how to you know how to get the most uh, out, of, out of your units. And you know, what, what what I would call maybe asset management as well as tenant management. They're all in the same from a property management uh, perspective. They should be doing, they should be doing that, right? Like you, I can only imagine though, you guys probably have a property manager, but you got to spend 80% of your time asset managing as well at the same time, which is a yes. lot of time.
2: There's yeah, a lot of asset managing, management. Like it, it, we were exhausted and we, yeah. it seemed like we were doing everything but collecting the damn rents, you know, and that wasn't yeah. even getting done, you know, well enough. So, yeah, we'll see fact, this was, yeah th- there's also the legality. There's so many l- little nuances or things that you can't do or, or can't say or or you have to do and we're jared and i just aren't there we we don't know all the the nooks and crannies and ins and outs yet um and i'm sure we'll revisit it we we want to get to close to 300 units by the end of this year or early next year um uh, and so this is a group that will be able to grow with us but yeah maybe eventually we do bring it in house we just we want to work smarter and not harder and I you know. The, the yep. best thing about my current company that I'm selling are the people. The worst part about my current company that we're selling are the people because yeah. there's benefits, there's payroll, there you know, there's all yep. of that. And yeah, I don't want to get too can, far into that. Tangent, but no, that makes
0: sense. That makes sense. But yeah, so back on the, you know, what's offered in the training and stuff. So okay. I hit on that. I hit on property management versus self-management. What are the pros and the cons? What are the things to look for to the listeners that are just trying to get started you know, what are the up fees? What are the true costs of property management? How much time are you still going to spend? Even though you hired a property manager and you think you're not involved, you should be involved still, guys. And I always say too, give it a shot, guys. So first time investors, give it a try. So that way you understand what you want your property manager to be doing, what you what the expectations are, because if you've never owned and you've never been a landlord, it's hard to really police the property management company because you don't know what you don't know. So when you give it six, 10, 12 months, you may realize, especially if you follow the model that I thought that, that I'm fostering, is you know, condos and townhomes, there's not a whole lot of property management involved. You know, and I do stuff up front before I'm buying my unit. If I'm going to a new area, I'm searching for electricians, I'm searching for plumbers, I'm searching for general maintenance. Those three guys you know you're gonna need, I get them ahead of time before I even own the unit, even. And now I have them ready and I get two or three and I advocate for that. I talk about how you rate them and what you do and what you screen and how you screen them, um, and then I even hit on like LLCs because you know do you want an LLC? What are umbrella policies? And then I just hit on the overall uh, financial measures of real estate investing. What is compounding? You know how do you make personal budget? That's one of the first, like to get started, guys, look at your personal budget. That's probably the best and first thing. And and see how much how much of your money are you eating? You know meaning how much. Going out, how much of these little things that you could change to come up with that down payment? And then I do talk about down payment. I do talk about um, you know managing that. How do you get your finances in, in together? And how much money do you really need to buy your first unit? And what is alternative financing? And what are other ways to get you started? Um, you know, I'm just a small player. I don't try to pose as somebody huge. Um, I could probably scale at volume pretty quick. I just choose to have a fun lifestyle. I got kids. I got a job. I enjoy life. And I'm not overwhelmed.
1: And that's me in a nutshell. I love, I love that, Mike. And it sounds like there's so much value in your training. Like what, what does this cost the listener? Like if they want to sign up for something like this? can any listener can get it for free, 100% free. Wow. By
0: putting in the promo code K-E-N-T. But yeah, typically guys, I'll let you know, it's it's $300. You know, we have a community. So it consists of uh, of a good amount, right? So first off, you get that section eight guide that I talked about. You get the PDF you get the e-course. You get a 15 chapter, 40 e-lesson e-course in there, which also has a lot of video. So it's not all just you reading. I have about 20 plus different videos of me going through some scenarios and explaining some things. Um, We we talk about bonus material in there that's not in the training, compounding real estate stuff, alternative financing options. I go through all that. Um, There's also the 10 different templates that are part of my training as well. So in there, I give you access to all my templates that I've refined over the course of 15, 17 plus years. Um, probably haven't been using the templates that long. I wish if, if I had, I'd probably not, not even be on this podcast. I'd probably be on some yacht. But um, <laughs> the templates are super, super helpful to many people. I've given them to my friends. Um, they were just Google Docs. And really, guys, too, I should mention, too, to listeners, too, like this all started for me just getting tired of repeating my story. Um, I host a poker game every, every month. I got one going on tomorrow night. Um, but uh, yeah. And when I do that, I find myself repeating, like this is what section eight is guys. Stop calling me a slum Lord. Stop with all the stigmas. You're incorrect. I love, I literally love my tenants. When I go to Maine, I go and visit them. I literally make it a point. I go and stop. I don't, couple of years. I don't, <laughs> I don't even see my units. Some of some of them for eight, 10 years, but I do talk to my tenants on a regular basis for sure um you get access to the my analyzing
1: tool. yeah what's up kid yeah mike this is this is so cool i did not know you were going to come on here and offer it for free so for all the listeners out there i've checked this out myself the information is legitimate like this is very very great basic foundational knowledge that you can just go through yourself learn it uh master yeah. it and then really decide how you want to how you want to invest in the spectrum of affordable housing like you can t- Like after today, I'm convinced I want to invest with Mike after hearing about his condo stores. I want that condo unit across from his three units. Like there is a mathematical support for this model. So, like, you gotta look into every single option, see what works for you, and then take action please you have a free tool resources now yep. because of the generosity from someone like mike and mike this is like i think you teed me up perfectly for this question because i think we need more people like you to solve this but why do you think affordable housing or the lack of supply of affordable housing is like so hard to solve for and if you think there's like one or two priorities that this generation should focus on to make a dent in it like what would they be i would love to kind of hear your opinion on this
0: yeah. Good question, Kent. And yeah, again, guys, so it's section eight secrets.com and just use the promo code K E N T for uh full free access to the entire e-course. You can get personal coaching one-on-one that comes at a cost, um, 3,600 bucks, uh, for a year, but you get 12 personal one-on-one. You know, and what I do is I take them through the entire deal process. They could sh- figure out how you want to use your 12 sessions. I'm happy to, you know, use them all in, in 12 days. I'm happy to use them in 12 months in, in, or in, Twelve years. It doesn't matter. I'm happy to be there, though, and accessible. And we have a, a community on here, too, guys. So we have people sharing their stories. Um, we do police it, and we just make sure that it's people that are part of our investing uh, platform. And it is really fun to see these ideas going out there and everybody sharing that stuff. But yeah, Kent, on your question, I mean, I, I hate to do it, but I got to blame the government, man. I gotta, I gotta say, the Housing Choice Voucher Program has a pretty big wrap. Uh, in in the eyes of investors, and it's probably because there's a lack of understanding of what it really is and accessibility on their websites. They're clunky. It's archaic. You know, when you go to hud.gov, even that in itself, you're like, you're thinking fax machines, right? And stuff. So they don't do a great job there. And then they can improve the overall once as a new investor, and I dealt with that because I partnered, my partner of Section 8 Secrets, Albert Al- Albert Cho, is somebody that he probably would never have done this if it wasn't for me telling him, literally holding his hand through it. The inspection process itself is so nerve wracking because you also can't even get a tenant to sign a lease until your unit passes an inspection. And that could take up to 30 days. So you're sitting there like twiddling your thumbs. You're like, I don't even know what to expect here. What are they talking about? You can't come out for three weeks? Like, how does this work? But when you know the program and you know what to anticipate and they're going out and you know the home quality standards, like our platform does, then okay. But not many people know that because there's not platforms that the government's offering for free. So it's suddenly like, it's super hard to find information. So I'd say they can make the experience of hunting and understanding what housing choice voucher investing is all about because it's more geared when you go to these sites, it's more geared for how do I apply? How do I get my housing? How do utilities work? You know, what's the waiting line, which, you know, on average guys, the national average waiting line is like six and a half years. So that's how backlogged they are and short they are of landlords and investors, which is why I wanna offer this platform for free to help that out. Um, so overall, yeah, just the websites and in, in the, in the full advertising. And my other point that I would say, one other critical one is stop with the 40 percentile. Like I said earlier, stop only targeting. And what I mean by that is the government has elected to choose that only the 40th percentile and below of any given neighborhood, any given county, that, those are suitable for housing choice voucher holders. But why? Why is it the 40th percentile? What mathematical government equation came up with that? And can it not change after, I don't know, what, 60 years? Is it time to up that? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. Should we go to 50%? Does that sound like a big number? I don't think so. It's 10% more, but are you t- kidding me with how many more houses that might open up to? And why do I say that? Because that'll make the numbers that much more appealing to investors. So Mr. Government, if you're listening, 50 percentile and below, we'll go with that. we we'll go even higher. Maybe I should ask for 70 and settle at 50, but that would be what I'd say, Ken. We need to go up more on the percentiles of homes and, and neighborhoods that they're They're targeted and deemed appropriate. Why isn't it 50%? Why? I get pretty passionate about this because these are good people. Why can't they live in the 50th percentile of a home? Why does it have to be 40? And why does that have to stay the way it has for 68 years? That seems silly to me. I haven't seen that number change in the 16 years that I've been in in Section 8 housing. It has remained at the 40th percentile. Up that because it ups the number of homes that are available to these dire need people. And what are we doing as investors? We're trying to enrich our lives, but it's also we enrich their lives by giving them a 50th percentile home in a neighborhood. So I am pretty passionate about it because I know the shortage is brutal. And I've talked to these tenants. They're in tears. They're desperate. They're on the streets. They're in shelters. They're couch surfing. They're in basements. These are the people that I've spoke with and they need the help. So we should change the way the government is policing it and advertising it and, you know. And then my last point is also incentivizing, incentivize the landlords. One thing main housing does is they incentivize me for every new unit I put in the program. It's not a big number. It's 750 bucks, but that covers my appraisal costs, right? They give me 750 bucks for every new unit, but they could go above that. You can go way beyond that. You have a lot of housing funding for it. So incentivize at a greater scale. Cause down here in Raleigh, North Carolina, the wait list is nine years. What's my incentive? Zero. I get zero incentive for putting a unit in, into the program. Incentivize government, please <laughs> give the reason for the novice investor to really say, hmm, let me stop in my tracks. Let me understand what is investing in Section 8 housing. Why might I do that? Give a little bit of sizzle, just a tiny bit, government. <laughs> so yeah, there it is, Kent. I got one on my rant.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. We we uh we had a meltdown here in Columbus. Uh we worked hand in hand with Section 8 here. Loved it. Great relationship. They loved us, vice versa. Um, I've talked about it on Nauseam on other other episodes. But then they outsourced everything they got rid of 70 or 80 employees And, and Section 8 here in town was the only governmental agency and I'm in healthcare, I deal with Medicare, Medicaid, like all day every day And Section 8 here was the only governmental agency that I've ever been associated with that i I walked away on the first day very impressed like nice in columbus they did it right they wanted you like you know uh, phenomenal but then they got rid of 70 or 80 people and outsourced it and uh it's not weeks it's months we we still have a unit that's like 10 months out we're still waiting on an inspection there are people sleeping inside the section 8 offices just like you said it's a it's It went from, you know, a great organization that didn't have enough inventory to just like, it's insanity right now. It's, it's, it's yes, I mean, it's pretty sad,
0: right? And and guys, and to the listeners too, understand though, you have a partner, you have a landlord liaison, they have case managers. So it isn't that bad. Once you get involved, guys, it's really great. But it's the government not doing the, the job to advertise this, to know what's available, and, and publicize it and incentivize it effectively and to also grow it at scale. Like stop with the 40%, go to 50%. But yeah, Dane, that, that, that's crazy, right? Like you're you're one mass firing, one tranche firing away from it. You know, I love main housing as well, so I hope that doesn't happen to them. The main housing staff there is, is unbelievable. I'm actually going up, I'm gonna speak at their annual um seminar that they have for investors to there are little pockets of things that they do I can't remember what they call this but they basically are a team of people that try to in, to try to promote more investors getting involved so they have an annual meeting in October that that they've invited me to speak at because I did share this platform with them they were like this is this is great we love this they they had a it before I can advertise for it up there in maine on some of the maine housing uh, advertising sites but um yeah it is too bad because once you get in the program, you will see, you know to the listeners, to the investors, like it is awesome, guys, because you are getting top dollar in rents because if you buy anyway at the forty percentile, it works. Just target the forty percentile. The numbers work just fine. The rents are super competitive, and you will never have a problem upping your rents because the government is sending me, on average guys historically, in 16 and a half years. This is, this is true, guys. I, I love numbers. 18.6% or 81.6% of all my rent dollars collected came from the government. Eight, right. 81.6% of all rents collected came from the government in yeah, my gee. 16 years as an investor. I only get less than 19% come from my tenants. That's not and hard I, to sleep at night.
1: And I'm sure and they that helps pay. you sleep at night. And they all it's pay. Not- so this is it. Um, I... Mike, I, I just want to thank you for coming on to the podcast because without people like you, I personally would have never had a stable home kind of growing up. So thank you. Thank you so much for investing in affordable housing. Thank you. Thank you for being like that glimmer of light and hope when we hear about all these problems with affordable housing. It's so amazing to hear that there are people like you and your partner that are willing to put resources like this available to the world for free. So guys, go to Section8Secrets.com. Use the promo code. K E N T and get these resources, get access to this education and start taking action because we need way more people attacking this problem. We need the government to create more incentives. We need the process to be more simple, but it also requires us to educate ourselves so that we collectively as a group can overcome all these challenges that, you know, there are stigmas against section eight tenants already. Like there's so many things that we have to overcome and we just need way more people involved in this and such a large community to make a true impact on this. So that's the reason why we started this podcast. And Mike, I am, Dana and I are so happy that you came onto the podcast today. It's been a blessing. This has been a wonderful conversation. We really hope that maybe we'll partner with you on a, on a deal, man. And then we can bring this onto the podcast and we talk about it like a case study. So people can follow that'd along be, every single step of the process. And that would be so cool. That'd be so that would fun. be so cool. So
0: that'd be I really cool, that. guys. Yeah, you could try using the platform to take you through and buy a unit and just, yeah, that'd be really cool as a case study. Like use the analyzer like pinpoint anywhere in the United States. That's what's really cool about the analyzer tool. So I have a VP of operations who's a software engineer background. You know, he comes from technology that he's also on my team and part owner. And uh, he built this analyzer tool based on what I told him to be doing because, you know, through the course of what I need to see in, in value. And we would love to see that happen. Like you could buy anywhere and it'll show you based on rent to value ratios, like where the numbers work? And, you know, of course we want to look at crime rate, which we we feed that in insurance rate, things like that. That's all in the analyzer though, man. That would be really cool to see. I have yet to, you know, and we just launched guys. So to be honest, you know, full disclosure here, January one, we just launched. So our community is kind of small right now. And, you know, our true authority is pretty low because I'm not big on social media. I'm my free time is spent with my family and, you know, maybe golfing and playing some cards, but uh, it would be really cool. Like as a case study for sure. That'd be awesome.
1: No, this has been fun, man. All right. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to wrap this up, but we can't wait to have you back on the show adventure at some point, man. So thank you guys. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, Ken, thank you. Nice Dane, time. nice meeting you. Awesome.